The second reading. Hello. The second reading today is from um, Ephesians chapter one. In fact, it's the whole of chapter one um, of Ephesians, and may be found on page one two two four of the Pew Bibles, or follow on on the screen. Ephesians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance till the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, let me encourage you to keep the Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. We will work through that. We do believe that the Word of God is indeed the Word of God, and we receive it as the Word of God. So. Uh, we want us as a church to, to see that what we're learning is from God himself. So, Bible's open. There's an outline on the inside of the newsletter. You might find that helpful. Well, let's uh, pray once again. 
Heavenly Father, as we start on this series on the church, help us to understand the significance of your purpose and design for the church and our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we do talk about the church, what is it that we mean? What is God's design and purpose for his church? Because if you think about the church from our world's perspective, many in our world today are looking upon the church, looking upon us, and they're thinking, you're out of date. You're quaint. You're wasting your Sunday. You should rather go and watch the footy. You're irrelevant. You're old-fashioned. And some perhaps even think, you are no longer the moral pillar of society you once were. And so, what are we meant to think about the church? How are we meant to understand the church? And what do we mean by the church? What is our place in the world? Do we still have a place? Well, we'll be considering these questions over the next six weeks in this series on the church. And it is my hope and prayer that as the people of God here, as the family of God, as his church here, that we will see the significance of our place in God's design, in God's purpose. The church is important in God's sovereign purposes. But also, it is my hope and prayer, and hopefully the rest of yours as well, that we'll all be convicted in our hearts, how deeply God loves us as we consider the book of Ephesians, as we consider what God has done and planned and purposed for us, his church. And finally, for us all to be so challenged, challenged in the way we live, so challenged in what we live for, so challenged that we'll all be living for Christ absolutely as the head of this church. And so today we start on the first of our series, The Church God Calls. You see, what that already says and implies there is that the church is God's idea, not ours. It's not like, you know, a few thousand years ago, a bunch of fishermen got together, lit a campfire and sang Kumbaya, and let's call each other the church. It's not a human idea. The church is God's idea, first and foremost. Because, you see, what does the word church mean? The word itself. Well, the word church does not mean a building. That is wrong. The word church is not about a social club. That is wrong. The word church does not mean sanctuary or temple. That is also wrong. The word church, it comes from a Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia. It's a Greek word and it simply means a gathering, an assembly, a gathering of people. It's a non-religious word such that in Acts chapter 19 there was a riot of non-believers in Ephesus. It broke out and that was called a church. The word church is a non-religious word just, that just means a gathering of people. But of course the difference in a Christian church is that it is very specific. A Christian church, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It is the people, not, the, not a building. It is the people whom God has gathered to himself through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. It is a people. So when we gather, as we gather this morning, 
we are the church. And so we talk about going to church, though we use that term loosely and it is in a sense true, but we come and become the church because the church is about the people, not the building. And so the gathering of the people of God has been God's intention and God's purpose since the very beginning. And we'll find in this chapter it is so profound and so extraordinary. You see, it's, it was God's purpose since the fall. When God judges, as we look and read in the Old Testament, when God judges, people are scattered. We see that in the Tower of Babel, people are scattered. We see that in the exile, people are scattered. When God judges, people scatter. But when God saves, when God brings salvation, when he brings his word of the gospel, he gathers. In judgment, he scatters. In salvation, he gathers people. And so in our first reading, it was about Mount Sinai. The people of God were gathered out of Egypt to be the people of God. In a sense, that was the first assembly. At Pentecost, after Jesus ascended up into heaven, the different tribes and tongues, they were gathered as the church, as the people of God. And we see the picture of the very end in Revelation, when people of all tribes and tongues will be gathered around Christ in the center of the throne. And so in judgment, God scatters people in salvation. They are gathered, and they are gathered around Christ. And that is the church. And so when Christians gather, that is, in a sense, the gathering, the assembly, that is the church, gathered around Christ. And it is the church, in God's purposes and design, that will have an eternal existence. Now just think about that. In all that happens in our world today, in all the companies and institutions and corporations in our world today, some huge, some very big, what does this mean? Well, what this means is that the only institution, if I can use that term loosely, the only institution that will survive the grave, that will last into all eternity, will not be the huge multinationals, BHP, ANZ, Apple, Microsoft. They will not survive the grave. The only institution, the only group of people who will survive into all eternity is the church. Is the church. In heaven you will not see banks. You will not see BHP. But you will see the church. And I don't mean their denominations as though in heaven there will be the corner for the Baptists. You know, where they have big swimming pools for baptisms and stuff. And a corner for the Anglicans and the corner with blue carpets for the Presbyterians. I don't mean that. What I mean is that all those gathered around Christ, the one church gathered through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will be the only thing that will last into all eternity. And so you see, the church is God's idea, first and foremost, not ours. God's idea. And it is the church that God caused into existence. It was not the disciples' idea. It was not their plan. It was God's first and foremost. And what we see here in Ephesians chapter 1, we see the richness and the depth and the excitement that Paul has when he reflects on what God has done for the church. And so let's have a look. The Apostle Paul, what we see here, 
He reflects on what God has done to bring into existence his people, the church. And he erupts in joyful praise as he reflects on what God has done. And he says here, he reflects here on how God has blessed us, on how God has chosen us, and on how God has predestined us. And what you'll notice in this chapter is that it is all of God's doing. God does all the activity, all the verbs, they're God's. He bestows, he lavishes, he makes known, all done by God, past tense, for us. We do nothing, and it is all centered on Christ. God gathers through the gospel of Christ. God gathers people in Christ, and God gathers people for Christ. You see, the church is God's idea. We are here not because we choose to. It's God's idea first and foremost. And so what we see here, God has blessed us. And he has blessed us in ways we can hardly imagine. With everything we ever possibly need. And this may be hard to believe, but look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with some spiritual blessings in Christ. Is that what we read? With a lot more spiritual blessings in Christ? Is that what we read? With every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every. God did not withhold. It means somehow that God will look upon you and me. I mean, reflect on your life and your heart. And as I reflect on my life and my heart, and God says, my favor is upon you. I've withheld nothing from you. Every spiritual blessing, not some, I'm not stingy, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, they are for you. And reflect on that for a moment. But if we are blessed by God, what part do we play in that? If God says he has blessed us, what do we contribute for, us to, for God to bless us? Is it because we are so nice and kind that God says, how can I not bless you? You see, it doesn't depend on us at all. The answer is nothing. We contribute nothing. We do not deserve anything from God, let alone every spiritual blessing from him. Now, you have to sense just how extraordinary that is. Just that verse, every spiritual blessing. Now, this past week, I watched um, a movie with uh, my kids. It was the New Avengers, the last one, apparently. Um, exciting movie, not very moving, but there are some movies that are, in fact, quite moving. And one of the most moving movies I've watched um, is the movie Les Miserables. You know that one, the old musical and the old story? If you know the story, you see how, how they weave throughout the story all these Christian themes of redemption and forgiveness and mercy and love and blessings. And in one of these scenes, we see the man, the, the, the main character of the movie, of the story, Jean Valjean. He, he's a prisoner, been in prison for 19 years, worked hard, labor, but yet was freed eventually. 
unable to find work, it was scavenging for food. And in this scene, a bishop takes him in, blesses him, graciously provides him with wine and bread and a bed for the night, blesses him greatly. Didn't deserve it one bit. And what did Jean Valjean do, if you know the story? Well, that night, he steals the silver of the bishop. He runs off, takes off, but yet he gets caught, gets brought back to the bishop, and what did the bishop do? Could have said the word and he's back in prison for another 19 years. But instead, offers him two more silver candlesticks, his most precious possession, blessed even more. And did he deserve it? Not one bit. Spared him, showed him mercy, showed him forgiveness, blessed him abundantly. I mean, Jean Valjean didn't deserve it, not one bit. But what we see here in Ephesians, if you just sense how wonderful that blessing is for that one man, God has done extraordinarily more for us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. And why? Well, that's the type of God God is. Generous, gracious, loving, merciful. You see, the, the establishment of the church, the gathering of the people of God, is God's idea, not ours. But not only has God blessed us, God has chosen us. Now, if you think about that, God chose us. I mean, what part do we play in being chosen by God? And as we reflect on these next few verses, it should really just hurt our brains just to think about what God has done because when did God choose anyone to be saved? When did God decide that he will gather a people around him, around Christ? When did God choose to save you, if you believe in Christ? When did he choose to save me? When did he choose this church? Look at verse 4. For he chose us in him, that is Christ, who chose us in him before the creation of the world. I mean, not before the 1990s, not before the 1980s, not before the world wars, not before you or I were born, not even before the death of Christ, the birth of Christ, but even before the first man, the first woman, before the first animal, before even the first stars were flung into the sky, before creation itself, before anything came into being, God had already chosen that you would believe, that you would be gathered around Christ, that you would be part of his church, now, how do you make sense of that? Before the creation of the world. But yet it is true. And so as you reflect on your own life, when you first became a Christian, when the gospel was proclaimed and you heard it and you believed, when that first happened, we like to think it was my choice. I decided, I analysed the gospel, I, I decided whether it was rational, believable or not. I decided, no. This is saying, God chose you first. God chose you first, not just before you were born, but before the creation of the world. Now, sometimes I would say to my own kids, before you were born, we always wanted to have kids, but before you were born, you were like, you know, the, the old saying, the apple in my eye. 
I say to Esther Calabethan, you were the apple in my eye. And they look at me and, and what do you mean? I can't see anything in your eye. But, but that sense where God has chosen us even before the creation of the world. And God did not just choose us so that we can live as we please. He did not choose to bless us with every spiritual blessing so that you can go on to live the filthy, dirty, sinful life you like. No. What do we see? He gathered us apart from the world, set apart by God, for God, to be like God. And what's that word? It's the word holy. He chose us to be holy. The Verse 4 again. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Which means that the life of the church, our life as people in this world, must be so transformed, so radical, so different, so distinct, that it is holy, pleasing to God, so different to our world. Again, it's like that, um, that movie Les Mis. What happened after the bishop showed such great blessing and grace to Jean Valjean? In the musical, he sang it, but he said, Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. You see, in that story, his life was radically transformed. He became mayor. He started to give, to care for the weak and vulnerable. His life was transformed because he experienced grace. But this is far more true for us who are Christians. God chose us, not so that we can continue in sin, to live for ourselves, to worry about ourselves, but to be holy, to be for Christ. And so blessed by God, chosen by God, but now also predestined. Again, the church is God's idea, not ours. Salvation is God's initiative, not ours. Because how is it at all possible that people like you and me, as we reflect on our life, your life, my life, we're not perfect, we make mistakes, we sin, we have deep regrets. We bring dishonor to God. We fail to love and worship God as we must. But yet for us to be loved and cherished by God Almighty, for us to be welcomed into the family of God, for us to have a place in the eternal kingdom of God, how is that at all possible? We're filthy, dirty, rotten sinners. It's only possible if God choose to, if God plans to, if God purposed to, if God predestined to, and that he did. Look at verses 5 and 6. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, you can't say that any more plainly, can you? Our existence, our life, our place as the gathered people of God is because he loves us and he has predestined us. 
I mean, as we reflect on all our lives, it is so different in so many different ways. But yet God has predestined that to be. I mean, as we heard this morning, the work of seal in Benin, it is because of God's love and God predestining, purposing her to serve in such a way. And so what should this do for us? Well, it should help us see how significant we are as the church of Christ. So different to how the world would see us, we are so significant in God's purposes and it should result in our praise of God. And so we see what God has done. He's done everything. Blessed us, chosen us, predestined us. And so what do we now have because of what God has done? Well, we already started. It is every spiritual blessing. And when? It is now. You have it already. If you are a Christian, it means that now, not just in the future, but now you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And it is now. And it's not merely talking about all the stuff we need to live, the physical stuff, water and food and clothing and health and mind and family and friends and relationships, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. It is extraordinary what is claimed here. It means that all that relates to and comes forth from the Holy Spirit is ours already. And so, for example, we now know if you are a Christian, you can know with crystal certainty that we have the love of God. That is part of the blessing. We have the peace of God. That is part of the blessing. We have the comfort of God. That is part of the blessing. We have the sustaining power of God that works in us to help us, to keep us persevering in faith. That is part of the blessing. We have the hope of glory. That is part of the blessing. We have heaven and we have eternal life. It is all ours already in Christ. Now. Now it is ours. And so I wonder whether you thought about your life in that way. You see, often our life, as we reflect on the things that happen even in this congregation, it feels like shifting shadows. It feels like beaten by the waves. It feels like blown and tossed by the wind. And that might be just how you describe your life at this moment. But this remains true for you. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing already. And it means, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. It costs the Son of God his blood, his life, so that our lives might be purchased for him. Verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. And as you reflect on it, I suspect that is so, so comforting for so many of us here. So, so comforting. You mean, God, this is true for me? That the shame of my past, the guilt, that regret that bears so heavily on my heart, that can be forgiven, all of it, God? And God says, yes. Why? Because, verse 7 and 8, it is in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. God lavishes abundantly in love. Every spiritual blessing is ours already in Christ. And that includes also adoption as sons. Verse 5 again. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. 
Now, I wonder how you feel about that. The ladies, the women here, why sons, not daughters? Why not adopted as daughters? Well, it's because, you see, in the ancient world, it was the son, in fact, the firstborn son, who was heir to the father's inheritance. Only the son, only the firstborn son. Daughters in the ancient world, no status, no freedom. But this all changed with Christianity. Daughters and sons alike. Paul is saying, daughters and sons alike, adopted as sons, which means you are all heirs together. It's not denigrating anyone, but elevating everyone as heirs. And this is a wonderful, wonderful truth of the gospel. It was J.O. Packer. I've used this quote in the past, and it's a wonderful one. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. That is what is promised, predestined to happen. And again, that, that movie Les Mis, it's a wonderful movie, you haven't seen it. It's the, one of the few movies I give 10 out of 10. In this movie, Jean Valjean, out of his own love and compassion, after, after this lady, Fantine, died, he sought out her daughter, Cosette. And he found those who were caring for Cosette, paid a huge amount of money to redeem her, to pay for her freedom. What could he have done at that point? Could have set her free. Now you're a free girl. Go live. Do what you like. But instead he went above and beyond. He adopted that little girl as his own. Cherished her. Loved her. Raised her. All that was his belongs to her. You see, adoption is one of the most wonderful demonstrations of the gospel. One of the most wonderful demonstrations of the gospel. And here it is, God and us adopting us into his family as his children. And of course, with adoption comes an inheritance. I've often wondered how good it would be if, if I was born in a royal family. Such a different life. Silver spoon, a royal spoon. Prince Charles, one day he will inherit the throne because he's good. Because he's great? No, just because he was born in the right family at the right time and he's the firstborn. He'll get Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Balmoral Castle, Sandringham Estate, the Duchy of Cornwall. He'll get stacks of stuff. But none of it will last into eternity. None of it will last beyond the grave. He'll still rot like the rest of us will still rot and all of that will just go to another. But here for the church, the people of God, the inheritance is eternal. No one can snatch it away. Life with God forever. And that's why Jesus was able to say before he died, he said to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And that's what Paul says here. That's what Paul says here. Look at verse 13. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. You see, you get included when you hear it and you believe it. Faith comes from hearing. 
the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Now why is that? Why would God give us his spirit? Well, it's a mark of ownership, like a seal. It's like today, how do you mark ownership over cattle? You, you, you stamp them, you mark them, you give it a seal. And so here we are marked in our hearts by the Spirit to say God owns us. And then verse 14, the Holy Spirit is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, there you go, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We know our inheritance is for sure because we already have the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts. The first instalment, the down payment, the pledge of the eternal inheritance. And so just think about all that God has taught in this first chapter so far. What do we bring to the table? What do we contribute for our salvation? For us belonging to the church of Christ? For us belonging to God? Well, we see we do nothing. God does everything, but we get everything. Every spiritual blessing, adoption, inheritance. The church is God's idea, not ours. And if it is God's idea all along, it helps us reflect on our life now as a church in this world, in a world like this. It helps us see our place in the world today. Because what does the future hold for us? Well, the future for the church, for Christians, for those whom God has called and chosen and predestined is incredibly, how do you say it? Incredibly big, secure, hopeful. But often, as we reflect on life today in our world, for the churches in our world, it feels like that's so different. It doesn't feel like that is the case. Often it feels like today the church is irrelevant, fickle, weak. Many churches are struggling. Numbers in churches are dwindling over the last few decades. Many of our country parishes, they really struggle to keep the doors open. And if the events of this past week says anything about the church, it seems like we're the target. We're not only weak, but we're the target. In Sri Lanka, the bombings we saw and we heard. In Chad, persecution from officials and violence from militant group Boko Haram. In India, Christians forced to burn their Bibles by a mob of violent extremists. In China, the government offers cash prizes to those who would dob in their Christian neighbours. In Nigeria, over 300 Nigerian Christians killed by Fulani militants since February. I mean, that's what's happening with the church around the world. It feels so weak, the target of such hatred and violence. It feels like we're diminishing. But what does this passage tell us about the church? What is the future of the church? Well, far from being weak and irrelevant. Persecuted, yes, but not abandoned. Struck down, yes, but never destroyed. Because, you see, if the church is God's idea, God establishes it, God builds it, who can stand against God? Who can stand against God? And look at how the Apostle Paul prayed now for the church. 
This is a prayer that I've prayed this past week for our church. It's a prayer that I've shared on the pastoral visits this past week with those I visited and we reflected on this prayer because sometimes I feel this prayer is so needed by us as a church. Sometimes I feel as Christians, as God's church, our view of our future is just so small, so earthbound in all our cares and worries and concern, so unworthy of God, our concerns, our minds so small, but yet this prayer stretches our minds, lifts our eyes, enlargens it, enlightens it to see more fully all that God has already given us in Christ. Look at how Paul prayed. He praises God for the church. It might seem weak in the eyes of the world, but he praises God for the church and he prays for the church. Look at verse 15. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and about your love in all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And shouldn't that be our praise to God for each other? I mean, we see real gospel faith amongst us, the work that God is doing. We see real genuine Christian love amongst us. We pray for each other, but also for our mission partners if you haven't noticed, every week we're praying for a different mission partner. It is a joy that we can partner and pray with them to see their faith and their love. Our elders in our session meeting, we commit to praying to, through our church membership by name. Paul praises God for them, and now he prays for them. Look at verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What's that prayer for? Well, what do you need to know when your life is going well? What you need to know is you need to know Christ better. Even when life is going well, because you'll be filled with an even deeper joy, how much he loves you. And what do you need to know when life is not going well? When it is a struggle, when it is hard, and when it is painful, well, you also need to know Christ better, the one who understands your pain and suffering, the one who can be of peace and comfort. That is Paul's prayer. And then verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of, the, of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You see, Paul is praying for the church. Do not lose sight. You might seem small and weak in the eyes of the world, but you are not in God's eyes. Don't lose sight of all that God has already done for us in Christ, but that we will know more fully the incredible, lavish blessings that are already ours in Christ. I mean, that's my prayer for our church this past week, and it will continue to be. We have been called by God. The church is God's idea, not ours, which means our future is as bright as it can be. And just like what we sang before in Amazing Grace, I shall possess with Christ at last eternal joy and peace. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
we pray Paul's prayer as our own prayer. As we hear of each other's faith in the Lord Jesus here and around the world, and our love for all the saints here and around the world, we do not stop giving thanks to you. We ask that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us all the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. We pray also that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know of the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and in your incomparably great power for us who believe. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the head of this church. Amen.